Uh, we are now continuing our Bible study, so if you will, I'll turn it over now to Mr. Curtis Whiteley for a continuation in James. He knows this one back and, backwards and forwards. He's already given us a whole mini-series on it. Good afternoon. Wait for the airplane to land or the bomb to go off like we do every week. Uh, before we start, uh, one last minute request that I have with everything going on at the beginning of services and thinking about some other things, I forgot to get two different volunteers to uh, hand out the microphone for our Bible study. So I found one the last minute, but just would like to, Ken, thank you. Oh, you guys can fight over, you guys can share. Okay. So here we are on our study number eight of our James Bible study, and so time has really went by quickly. Uh, this is uh, an eight or a nine uh, part series, nine part study book, but we know that James could, could go on and on and on, and we could study, I think Steve last week might have mentioned, uh, I was listening in on, li on the live stream, uh, actually the recording later a little bit, and we could study every single passage and spend, you know, weeks on each passage. And so I'm going to go off and just start like uh, we usually do, and I'm going to read the introduction. He entitles this uh, lesson, The Rich and Suffering, The Rich and Suffering. And we're going to talk about some different concepts today, uh, concepts that really James has been talking about throughout the letter, uh, and concepts that we've, we've discussed before. But he, the focus is James, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 12. And so I'm just going to start off real quick and read his little introduction his little introductory narrative. He says, When my sister and I were reckoned to be old enough not to need a babysitter anymore, my parents occasionally went out for the evening, leaving us on our own. Normally, this worked fine. We could see to ourselves, the front door was locked, and in any case, the world seemed a safer place in those days. But one evening, for some reason, I began to worry I have no idea why, but instead of going to sleep as usual, I stayed awake and fretted, supposing something had happened to them. What if there had been an accident? Perhaps they wouldn't come. Not that night, not ever. I think my sister must have been asleep by then because she would have told me not to be silly. But I ended up sitting by the window, cold with fear, hardly able to believe it when eventually the car turned up our road stopped, and there my parents safe and sound after a good evening, and puzzled that I, have, that I would have been so anxious, or been anxious. I suspect that when Jesus finally appears, many of us will have the same sense as I did then. How could we have been so foolish as to doubt it? To doubt it? How could we think that just because it was later than we had wanted and hoped it might mean he would never come at all. Every generation of Christians has prayed that he would come as he promised. And so for every and so far every generation has had to learn the lesson of patience that James offers. And so to start off this study, I do want to ask this opening question. What have you had difficulty being patient for recently? Is there Anybody that would like to share maybe a recent example of something that they've been going through that really has been difficult to be patient for? 
I know that me personally have been working on a project for the last few months, and it's been, it's, it's been hard for me to be patient because I want so badly for this project to be done, for it to be behind me, for me not to have to worry about it anymore. And so in my mind, I'm very impatient because it causes me some stress, it causes me some worry, and so in my mind, the way it's working is, is that the solution of removing that worry is just to get it done, to complete it. And of course, that forces me to want to speed it up. It's a project that really does take a lot of time. You can't speed up some parts of it. Uh, and so when I think about that, what's funny is I know how I am personally, that I will get done with this project, but there will be just something else that I start being impatient with, something else that I start worrying about. So is there anybody that would maybe like to share something that they've struggled with recently, patient-wise? Reggie? Well, I <clears throat> may appear to be patient and have been patient with my students for years and years and years and years. I'm growing increasingly impatient over time. Um, I'm particularly impatient with things like my computer. I am very impatient with my computer. It's supposed to be a labor-saving device, but it ends up causing me more trouble than it's worth. And I think God has given me an interest in woodworking uh, recently to take to make me more patient, to teach me more patient, because you can't rush woodworking. If you do, you end up cutting your fingers off and things like that, like I've done quite a bit recently. Anybody else like to share? So with that, we'll go ahead and go into the actual scriptures here. Uh, James, the first chapter, verses 1 through... Uh, 1 through 12. I'm going to go ahead and just read all of the scriptures uh, for today. And then we'll kind of come back and we'll talk about the different parts. So if we read James, the fifth chapter, excuse me if I said James chapter 1, James 5, verses 1 through 6. Uh, and then we'll read also verses 7 through, through 12. We'll read all, all 12 verses. James tells us, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and the corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the heirs, of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently. For it until it receives the early and later rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord 
as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. And so this first question that we're asked is, why, according to James, should the rich weep and well? Why, according to James, should the rich weep and well? Go ahead, Ken. Because all of that money they've spent all that time gathering up and cheating other people out of is going to go away. You know, and if you don't think that can happen, notice that at least twice as much of your money is going away now, and it just just happened. Absolutely, absolutely. It's kind of similar to what I wrote down. We know that one of the things that James says is that the cries of the oppressed has reached the ears of the Lord of, of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth. And so I'm kind of reminded whenever he says that here, if you think back to Moses, and you think back to whenever he's hearing the, you know, the voice of God coming from the, the burning bush, one of the things that was told to Moses is that I've heard my people, I've seen what they have went through. He's seen the oppression of his people, and he's saying that time is coming for their judgment. And so... We see that there's you know, several things that we could talk about that in this context that James is talking about that these people and their wealth, there's you know, four things that I wrote down. The way that they look at their wealth, they, they look at their wealth is something that's always going to be there. But we know that their wealth, just like anything that we have, is temporal. It's not going to last forever. But James is telling them, you know, you should weep because you're laying up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Kind of goes back to what Jesus says, where rust and moth destroy. Uh, what they also need to weep because they're guilty of oppressing innocent people. And so we have a long list of prophets that talk about the judgment that's coming to those individuals who prey on the innocents. And we have examples of that in history, right? But unfortunately, we have examples of that in our present and modern day. We have examples of that of what's going on in the world where leaders are invading other countries. And I don't, you know, claim to know all the ins and outs, but we can definitely see that there's evil regimes that do completely oppress innocent people. And even if, you know, there's wrong on both sides. The collateral of it is some of those people that have no say-so whatsoever in what's going on. Thirdly, I wrote down, they will receive judgment, of course. That's one of the reasons we've already talked about. But also, they live their life as if there is no judgment. And so James is talking to these people that there's going to come a time where you realize all those things that you put stock into, all of those things that you believed was going to be eternal, that are going to last forever, like you're going to be able to take it with you forever, is going to come to nothing. 
So is there anyone else that would like to chime in on this section, on this question? According to James, should the, why should the rich weep and well? No one else? David? Well, I think perhaps maybe the, the, the type of rich that we are talking about here is one that is hard to define because there have been, the, the scriptures are replete with rich patriarchs who were both rich and faithful. And part of their faithfulness, or a, as a result of their faithfulness, their blessings, Job is mentioned here. Job was immensely wealthy. He went through the trial. He lost everything. His wife lost everything too, but she's not the part of the story that, that we read. But then when he came through the trial, it was restored to him in multiple fold. And I think maybe what I think of as myself and those around me and the people in this country who even among the poorest are the richest in the world and, and how, how much we have relied on a system that we, we simply go to the grocery store and we obtain our sustenance daily and what happens when it's taken away? We've become incompetent. We've become incapable. We, we are reliant on a false god. And it, I think in some ways this is a warning also to us. I, I'm not rich or wealthy, except by the world standards. I have a friend in, in Rwanda that I, that I text back and forth with occasionally. They can't get food right now. He can't get work. Everything is completely shut down. We have an inconvenience because of the shutdown. They are starving to death because of the shutdown. We don't know what it is like to truly be without. And I think it is actually us who is going to have to weep and moan. It's a really good point, uh, especially for individuals that have been blessed to live in luxury. Uh, and even though, kind of like what David said, that you know, it's really a, and it kind of goes to the, the, the fourth question that we're getting ready to go to, because I'm going to skip down to question four, and I'm just going to hold that thought. N.T. Wright writes on question four, wealth is always a relative thing. We can always think of people who have more than we do, and so excuse ourselves from the accusation of being one of those rich people. How can we overcome this problem and gain an accurate perspective on our actual situation when it comes to how rich or poor we are, and I think that kind of gets to what David's talking about, is that it is relative, right? It's relative in the sense of we can be, you know, uh, someone in our own society that definitely is lower on the totem pole when it comes to maybe finances uh, and wealth and things like that, and be inconvenienced, and it'd be difficult to get, you know, by week to week, but then you can maybe have someone in another part of the world that you're still as low as you are in your own society, you're way above and in better position than what someone else is facing in different parts of the world where we're just frustrated because we don't maybe have the money to be able to you know, go do something that's maybe of entertainment, but they're you know, literally at the mercy of not having enough money or enough resources to actually feed themselves to get by from day to day. And so I just I want to ask that question that N.T. Wright asks on question four. How can we overcome this problem and gain an accurate perspective on our actual situation when it comes to how rich or poor we are? It's a difficult question. Fran? K. 
can this be in relevance to the Laodiceans? Not physically, it's not, a, they don't talk about physical wealth, but the people think everything is fine and they're doing fine and they're not lo really looking at how they are. I think so. I think that you can definitely apply this to somewhat of a uh, cognitive dissonance where you don't really want to admit maybe there is a problem. You just think that, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in a, you know, I'm, I'm following God. I'm going to church every week. I'm doing the things that I need to be doing. And you kind of blind yourself. And then when you read scriptures like this, you say, well, yeah, those people are going to be cursed. And, and you never consider maybe there's elements of your own life that apply to this, that maybe, you know, in some ways that you live as if you're one of the rich people, the rich landowners that have a history of oppressing other people. And maybe you don't necessarily deliberately go out and oppress people, but by your actions, you're definitely not living like Jesus did, where you're looking how you can extend your hand and help people. Go ahead, Larry. Um. I look at this from the standpoint God has, is the one has, that has given us the blessings that we probably a lot of us end up taking for, get, taking for granted because how much of the wealth we have is in this nation and if we look, look around what's going on and especially as things continually worsen and worsen and I I'm sure some of you are watching what's going on. The mega drought that's taken is heading this way from the west. And as we think about ourselves compared to what's going on over in Ukraine, they don't wait. Oh, they're just they don't have don't not they don't have enough to eat. And how much of the world also doesn't have enough to eat? God is the one that has given us these blessings, but it it appears to me. Things are worrying for a change in this nation because of the way our morals and our lack of fear of God and what all is going to has is taking place. We're reaping what we have sown, and it's not good news. But we know it is good news on the other side. Yes. I've been pretty fortunate. I've been able to go to third world countries and. I've been able to be around people that were really in need. Uh, I was in a, a country where the life expectancy were there was age 45. And I've seen people that were really in need that whenever you take something that you think of like say $20 or something like that, that could be maybe a half a year's wages to them. And uh, today, you know, we they tell us that we're having droughts and stuff like this and people are running out to the stores and hoarding up stuff, gathering up as much as they can. And when you look around, <laughs> we're still so much better off than the rest of the world and the rest of the places we are and we really, you know, are blessed. And I think it, this here gives us this little bit of suffering that we're going through now is letting us know how rough it is, you know, because in England and stuff, they were paying for years the price of the gas they were paying in liters, what we were paying in gallons here, 
and it takes what three and a half liters for per gallon so we've been blessed and so we need to be prepared for the worst yeah I was when David was talking that uh, the real issue maybe isn't how wealthy are we but what are we putting our trust in uh, the false God he's talking about it becomes a false God when that's what you rely on whether it be the grocery stores or meat producers or um, people that have our electricity for our heat and air the fact is our Messiah said you know look at the birds look at the flowers he said I take care of all those so I think if if our trust is in him it doesn't matter the wealth we have because I believe you're right some countries we would be considered kings the way we live so but if we put our trust in those kind of things then it says the moth will eat it and the corrosion will get it so yeah those things are not the the important thing so Sarah two things come to mind one is gratitude we need to be grateful to our God for what we have it's not our good looks it's not our charm and our wit that bring us the wealth that we have it's God and the second part is as we see those things being challenged or decaying and falling away it's human nature to point the finger at who's doing this to us why why is this happening somebody made a decision that you know is affecting us and we want to play the blame game I believe it's God's judgment on us and we have one response that will turn that around and that's if God's people will humble themselves and pray and so far it's not happening we're busy playing the blame game and if you read Deuteronomy 28 he's got a whole laundry list of things yet to come and when we are humbled enough we will cry out to him and I just wonder how much it'll take thank you Ron. the question is uh, how can we overcome the problem when wealth is a relative thing and one way is uh, to be content with what you have and recognize that there are always people poorer than you that you can help so no matter what you're standing you can always be helping somebody thank you I think we're going to move on from this but I think what's interesting is is that in the context of what we're reading here we see that James is talking about this in relevance to the return of Christ the day of the Lord right so James is having this discussion and it's 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 two it's twofold. It's number one. It's a warning. The day of the Lord is at hand. Okay, beware that judgment is coming for those of, that are living in unrighteousness, for individuals like this that are preying on the innocent. All those things that the prophets talked about repeatedly, talking about how the innocent are being oppressed. That this is going to happen. That the day of the Lord is at hand. So it's a warning. But on the other end of the spectrum. It's also a word of encouragement because there's definitely individuals that is in the minds of James that he's writing to these individuals. As he says, he's writing to the 12 tribes of Israel that are scattered abroad. He's letting them know, be patient. Because they're probably thinking, we've lived our entire lives where we have these wealthy landowners, these, these kings and these emperors and these even with our, within our own brethren, our, 
are, you know, if he's speaking to, to, to those who are of the Jewish faith, these individuals that are at the hierarchy of the Jewish faith, the, the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees that live in this wealth and really set up, although they do, you know, according to themselves, they proclaim to follow God, they definitely, as we see Jesus say, at the, it's at the, oftentimes at the expense of really the true faithful Jewish people. And so, in light of that, he's wanting those individuals that he's writing to to just be encouraged that it's going to happen, to, to, to practice patience. And so I'm going to reread that section because the first part, it's like a quick turn, right? He's talking about the rich and, and, and how they should you know, uh, be fearful and how there's judgment coming. And then he goes into this idea of being patient because Christ is coming. He says in verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the uh, the early and later rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed with endurance. Or, or, we, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and sent the end intended by the Lord and, by the, and the, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Verse 12, above all, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. And so, in question 7, it says in verse 7, James urges patience as we await the coming of Christ. At the beginning of the study, N.T. Wright says that he mentioned how generations of Christians have waited for Jesus to appear again. How would you describe what it is like for you to wait for the return of of the Lord. I know that there's a lot of us in here that have been in the church for many, many years and have seen different things happen and different teachings and different prophetic predictions. We know we live in the United States of America and there's not been any short of, you know, evangelistic predictions among, you know, our American evangelistic culture that we have in this country. Uh, Many of you have probably heard of Hal Lindsey before, right? And he wrote the book about how, you know, I don't know what it was, but 1,989 reasons Jesus is going to come back in 1989. And he didn't come back, and so the next year he wrote, you know, in 1990, 1,990 reasons Jesus is going to come back in 1990. So there's no short, uh, shortness of individuals in our own tradition as well that have predicted, long for, that's the core of what our faith is, right? We're waiting for this day of the Lord. And so just going back to that question, how will you describe what it is like for you to wait for the return of the Lord? Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, I, I, Kay, um, I agree with what you're saying there because I grew up in Worldwide. And although I was born after a lot of those events of the 70s that Mr. Armstrong predicted, um, there was still that thought that, I mean, I honestly thought Jesus would 
returned by now, obviously. By the time I was 25, I guess, what I thought when I was a kid growing up. But I think we just need to continually pray thy kingdom come. And we know there's a lot of events that have to take place. Prophecy is, hasn't really even started yet, if you go by the book of Revelation. So we've got a long way to go, but keep praying, have faith, and uh, that day will come soon. I kind of view the whole thing. Um, I feel like I've lived long enough to history to see that these events around me are unfolding and it will happen, and I don't know if I want to live through the tribulation. So I kind of have a different view on the whole thing. Carolyn. People like myself that may not see the return of Christ, but just like Paul said, he runs a race, and our race is here every single day of our lives to become faithful and true to Christ. And when we breathe our last on this earth, we will be the next thing seeing the return. So whether or not we see it while we're still living, we will see it when we're resurrected. So our race is here on earth a lot of the time. See. It was interesting that uh, when I was first in the in the way, you know, the um, they came out with a booklet called 1975 in Prophecy and said all of us were <laughs> that were around at that time. We were all planning to go to Petra, and you know, um, you know, what are we going to do over there, you know, in the desert and all of that. And of course, just like they were saying over there, those how Lindsay and different ones who have prophesied many, many times, and even to the groups that, uh, you know, uh, thought they should uh, kill themselves so they could be, you know, instantly there and all of that. Um, God has given us uh, uh, his word. Um, we are to uh, be rich in spirit. We are to have our treasure in heaven. And we are to wait patiently for the return of Christ. That's the way it is. Just to conclude, I'd like to have this go ahead for now. I'll let you. I can remember every time the, there would be a famine somewhere or a, a really bad hurricane, you know, we'd think, oh, wow, it's coming, it's coming. And I think the hardest part of all of it is being aware of not allowing the world to infiltrate our own selves and being ready. And that's the thing. Absolutely. Thank you for everybody for their input on that. Uh, I definitely think that there's something interesting to think about, too, as well, is that uh, there have been individuals that have taken it upon themselves that they think that they need to partake in... Make, you know, getting Jesus to return. And so there's, you know, different things that people have done. You know, I know that you know, there's been that discussion about we need to get that temple, help the Jews build that temple in, in Jerusalem so we can get Jesus back here. You know, uh, you know we, and, and we need to get the right, you know, cows together to have the red heifer and things like that. You know what I mean? 
So there's, there, there's been throughout history not only this prediction frenzy, but there's also been throughout history individuals that think that their life's uh, you know, uh, fate or you know, what they've been put in here for is to help you know, bring in Christ's return. And so when James wrote to these individuals, these 12 tribes of Israel scattered abroad, it's probably likely that some of those individuals were what's known as a group of people known as the Zealots. Zealots were people who were a faction of the Jewish people, the Israelite people, that tried to take it upon themselves to force, by force, the Romans from Judea so they could reestablish the kingdom of Israel and things like that. The last question, I don't want to harp on this too much because we've got to wrap it up. Uh, question number eight, the very last part of that sentence. N.T. Wright, how does James encourage his readers to be patient for the appearing of the Lord? And what I think is interesting is, is that example that James gives, one of those examples, is example of the farmer. The farmer. And so in Judea, in this part of the world, the farmer had to rely on two things. The latter rains and the, the, the early rains in like late autumn, and the early rains of spring. And so if you go back to Deuteronomy, the 11th chapter, verses 8 through 15, we see this scripture talking about these Israelites. They're coming out of Egypt, right? And they're coming out of Egypt, and they're going into a completely different type of agricultural environment. And so in the process of doing that, they have to realize, and the scripture says that if you follow my commands, if you're faithful to this covenant, I will give you the later rain, or the early rains and the later rains. It is a land that's not like Egypt, where you watered it by foot. What's interesting about that is that in Egypt, they, they dug canals, right? These irrigation ditches. Uh, where they would literally, they took it upon themselves to control the watering of their agricultural fields. Now, I'm no farmer, so some of this I might get mixed up because I don't know exactly how it works because I've never been into farming. But what is interesting is in that scripture, we read that God tells them that the land that you're going to is watered by rain, by God, which requires a lot more faith. And the fact is, is that a lot of the work of a farmer is cultivating, is preparing. A lot of it is patience. And that's why I think James gives this. This life, we're not worried about forcing the harvest. We're worried about cultivating, preparing, working on ourselves, being patient and trusting that God's going to bring the necessary ingredients. If we're faithful to that cultivating process, if we're faithful to that preparing process, he's going to bring the early and later rains. And eventually, in due time, using the patience of a farmer, we will reap that harvest. And God will reap that harvest and he will return. That we have to focus on the here and now and living our lives as if the kingdom has come. Living under kingdom rules as we wait patiently for Christ's return. And so with that, I would just like to conclude this Bible study. This is lesson number eight. We have one more next week. And uh, it's been a good, good study. And excited to see everybody here next week for our last one.